So let me begin by just coming right out and saying it. You probably know it by now. Calvary Chapel is an Orthodox, Protestant, Evangelical Christian church. Those words all mean something, and they're mostly assumed in most cases. But let's take the time to break them down very quickly. By Orthodox, I mean that we hold the historic doctrines of the Christian faith. We believe not only do we go all the way to the beginning, but that you should go all the way to the beginning to hold your doctrine. That if it is something brand new that was invented at a certain point in church history, and I'm not talking about coming to greater clarity of something, but a major innovation, we're simply not interested in it. And just because God has done a new thing through Calvary Chapel does not mean that we believe we've got a whole new set of doctrines for you to believe. No, we hold to the historic doctrines of the Christian faith. There's nothing dodgy going on when we say Christian here. Orthodox. We are also a Protestant Christian church, which of course means we come from the tradition of the Reformation which happened under Martin Luther and John Calvin and so many others. We are not part of the Roman Catholic Church. We do not submit to the authority of the Pope, etc. We also would place the doctrines of Scripture above canon law and all the rest of it. But I think most of you all understand that or you wouldn't be here. We are an evangelical Christian church. Now that's a title that is being stretched for all it's worth by some people who don't want to hold the evangelical doctrine but still want to hold on to the name evangelical. It comes from the word for gospel. That means that we are theologically conservative, believing the reality of the gospel. And as I always try to remind everybody, political conservatism and theological conservatism are not the same thing. When we say theologically liberal, politically liberal, those are two different things. Same words, but they refer to different things. I always understand evangelical to mean we actually believe this stuff. There are lots of churches that are churches, and they talk about Jesus, and they talk about the gospel, and they talk about the Bible, but you ask them about it, and they're really kind of nonchalant about it. There's all kinds of other ways and other ideas, but I think in the best definition to be evangelical is to believe that the gospel is the one and only way to be saved. John 14, 6, Jesus Christ is the way, the truth, and the life, and no one comes to the Father except through him. So those are a bunch of labels. But really, it means the Bible is our standard and that Jesus is our God. That we stand in the long line of God's true church. There has always been a faithful remnant of God's church. And by his grace and in all humility and prayer, we strive to be part of that. So this is to calm any nerves that may come in when folks come in. A lot of you have wanted to meet with me to ask about our doctrine and things. I think that's great. But I'll, I'll just say the same thing I always say. There are no surprises with Calvary Chapel when it comes to the essentials of the faith. There's no deviation. There's no innovation. We're not looking to change or alter or tweak these things. We're only trying to come to a greater understanding of them and maybe re-explain them in a fresh way to a new generation. We are not those that believe every generation has to decide what it means to be a Christian. No, Jesus told us what it means to be a Christian. Every generation has a new set of challenges to work through. So there are no surprises at Calvary Chapel. This is an Orthodox, Evangelical, Protestant, Christian church. And the things we're going to go over tonight are to affirm the basics of the faith, the absolute core, the non-negotiables. And as you'll see, 
these are pretty lean. Systematic theologies can be four or five volumes sometimes. There's a lot to talk about when it comes to the Bible and doctrine and church history and all the rest of it. But tonight we're going to focus on the things we share in common with other churches, the essentials of salvation. And as I said, there are many who want to claim all those titles, and then you press them and you say, can you really call yourself an evangelical? Can you really even call yourself a Christian, believing X, Y, or Z? Or if you don't believe X, Y, or Z, we believe there is a standard of faith that has been handed down to the church through the centuries and that we desire to hold on to it. So let's, let's go through these. I'm not going to spend a lot of time defending these points. That's what Sundays and Wednesdays are for. That's what the online videos are for and everything else is to defend these and to explain them. But tonight we're mostly going to affirm them. I'm just going to state what we believe. And especially tonight, none of this will be news for you. And when you're talking about doctrine and you're talking about Christian faith, even the beginning point can be difficult to decide upon. Do we want to start with the Bible because the Bible gives us all of the information? Or should we really start with God who inspired the Bible? But then it becomes a conversation of then how do we talk about God without using the Bible before we get to the... It's kind of silly. It's all tied together. So we're going to start with Scripture for the purposes of discussion, understanding that God was there first and God inspired that Bible. Which even saying that says a lot about us as a church. We believe that the Bible is the Word of God with a capital W. It is his special revelation to us. It is a living book. It is not just a dead letter. It is our standard for life, our standard for doctrine, for church praxis. As it says in 2 Timothy 3, 16-17, as one of our apostles wrote to one of his disciples, all scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction and for training in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. All scripture is breathed out by God, inspired by God. Peter would talk about how the men of God that wrote the scriptures were carried along by the Holy Spirit to give a faithful deposit of what God wanted written down. There are four important qualities that we have to know about the Bible. And as I said, these are non-negotiables. There are some in the church who I would call believers who would disagree on, on maybe how to frame these things or which words to use. But I am perfectly confident saying that if you do not hold to this view of Scripture, it's just a matter of time before the other things become threatened as well. So we are going to talk about this as a non-negotiable, although I suppose a person could be saved without believing exactly this. But let's go through it. The Bible is, number one, inspired. We just read it. Breathed out by God. It was brought about by the Spirit through men. Inspiration is an important process. It's not the same thing as what the Muslims believe, that Muhammad was in an ecstatic state and that Allah just grabbed hold of him and when he woke up out of his trance, oh, there was, there was the Quran. Or as the Mormons believe that they discovered gold plates that had been inscribed with the words of God. We don't believe that. We believe that God used men like David, Moses, Matthew, Paul to write it down. And that God did not override the personality of these men. You can see it in scripture. James writes differently than Paul does. Hosea writes differently than Nahum does but that the Spirit used these men to sovereignly produce His Word. So if you want to get technical, it's called plenary verbal inspiration. 
Plenary means all of it. Verbal means words. So every word. <laughs> plenary verbal inspiration. Because there are those that will say, well, we believe the Bible is inspired in, in, in a broad sense, but you can't say that every word is the word of God. To which I ask, well, then where, does, where do you draw that line, my friend? It's all inspired. Every word is there just the way God wanted it to be. Which is what you see in the New Testament, right? They're, they're building doctrines off of sometimes even the, the number of a word. A plural versus a single noun is used to develop doctrine. God could have chosen any way to reveal himself to the church. He chose words. Therefore, words matter. So it's inspired. Which I already kind of said this, but number two, the Bible is inerrant. Which means it does not have any errors in it. It is true in all of its truth claims of every kind. Not just theology, not just about heaven, also about history. Also about the motivations and the hearts of the people that were in it. In the narration of the story and how it proceeded. Even extending to the numbers that are used. Now, there's a long list of important qualifications that I could get into another time. But we should say that inerrancy applies to what we call the autographs. Meaning when Paul had the paper in his hand and the ink was drying. That's what's called the autograph. And then copies were made. And if there is any deviation between one copy and the other, whichever one matches up to what we call the autograph, the original, is correct. And there's a long process that we go through that I've talked about before in order to get that. You can trust your Bible. But it's important for a sense of theology. The Bible is inerrant. Properly understood. Properly interpreted. The Bible is correct in every claim that it makes. And number three, the Bible is infallible. What's the difference? Inerrant means every word is truthful. Infallible means every word is reliable. Everything the Bible teaches us morally and spiritually can be relied upon. It is never going to lead you astray. When it says Jesus is the only way to heaven, that's true. It's not just that Jesus was a man that thought he was the only way to heaven. Do you see the difference? That he is, in fact, the only way to heaven. That's why we look to the Bible for our doctrine, and we allow our traditions and our opinions to be judged by the infallible word of God. Which is number four, the Bible is authoritative. If all that's true, if God made it, and it's all correct, and it's all reliable, then doesn't the Bible have some authority over your life? It is our standard by which we judge our own ideas and our own actions. And this is what I'm constantly doing every week is standing up and not just explaining what it means, but calling you to obey it and do what it says. Sometimes that's the hard part. There are Bible scholars that are fantastic at interpreting the scriptures, but you look at their life and they're not listening to any of it. There's no authority over their lives. So the Bible is inspired, inerrant, infallible, and authoritative. And by the way, by the Bible, we mean the historical canon that the church has had from the beginning. The 39 books of the Old Testament and the 27 books of the New Testament. And no others. Mere Christianity by C.S. Lewis is a great book. It is not inerrant. It is not authoritative for your life. Except as it correctly explains what the Bible says. So, this is important. We do not believe that the Bible contains God's revelation. Well, that sounds just great, doesn't it? But what that is implying is that it's in there, but it itself is just a vessel. You've got to look through it. This is Karl Barth, kind of his idea from the early 20th century. It's in there. You can find it, and you will find it. But that doesn't mean you've got to take the, the whole enchilada. 
I don't think he used the word enchilada, but, you know, he was German. Nor do we believe that the Bible witnesses to God's revelation. This is a very common modern idea. That it's, it's the account of how God dealt with people in the past. So that will guide you and how God deals with you in the present. It does not necessarily mean that how God acted then is how God acts now. And how they believed then is what you have to believe now. Isn't this so slippery? This is what I mean by people can say, oh no, I believe the Bible. It's like, but do you believe the Bible is inspired, inerrant, infallible, and authoritative? We believe the Bible does not just contain his revelation, nor does it just witness to his revelation. Hear me, the Bible is God's revelation. It is the revelation of God from heaven. And therefore, it is of incalculable value. Well, I don't, I don't think God is limited by his word. Well, nobody's limited by their word, but it's his word. God is never going to contradict himself. We believe that God still speaks to his people. That's kind of a huge theme of the Bible. Those idols don't say anything. I'm a speaking God. The New Testament tells us the Spirit dwells within us. But God's never going to go against his word because he's already said it. He's not going to come to you and say, I changed my mind. God doesn't do that. For that reason, we value church tradition. But we always test tradition by the word of God. That's what Jesus did, right? Jesus, when he went to the Pharisees and the Sadducees, he goes, these traditions are great, but they're not scripture. Because you're teaching your own opinions as doctrines. And the church has fallen into that many times. So we believe that God has revealed himself in the Bible. We believe we can know him through the Bible. And so as a church, we devote most of our time to studying the Bible and interpreting the Bible and trying our best to obey the Bible. Amen? All right. Number two, let's talk about God for a minute. Another thing that might seem very basic, but we're talking about basics tonight. We at Calvary Chapel believe in God. Another thing that you would think would be universal across Christian churches, but that is simply not the case. We believe in God, not as an abstraction, that there is an uncaused cause out there, that there's, there has to be something or this world just doesn't make sense. We believe he is the personal, all-powerful spirit who created the universe and sustains the universe by his power. Now, the Bible does not take time to prove the existence of God. It assumes the existence of God. <laughs> Genesis 1.1, in the beginning, God. It's not going to take the time to explain it to you. God was there first. It's almost kind of insulting, don't you think? Because like, you <laughs> ask me if I exist. I was here before any of this existed. Hebrews 11 verse 6 says, Without faith it is impossible to please him. For whoever would draw near to God must believe that he exists and that he rewards those who seek him. This, this is step one. We believe that God exists, and we believe that if we seek after God, we will find God. And so we do seek him. We worship him as Lord. He's revealed himself in nature and in our hearts, and specifically through his word. We've spent many long hours going through the attributes of God, but let's just run through a few of them. God is omnipotent. He has all power. There's nothing God cannot do. So we're not worshiping one of those petty little gods that you can climb the mountain and fight with your sword like you see in a video game or something like that. Or that we also believe that God is omniscient. He has all knowledge. You're not going to pull one over on God as, as Jonah and others found out. He knows everything. Number three, God is omnipresent. He is everywhere as Jonah also found out. His spirit fills the whole earth. And while God 
locates himself especially in heaven and at certain places throughout salvation history, he is not limited by space. And number four, God is omnibenevolent, which means God is all good. He is perfectly loving and he is perfectly just, which means he is also wrathful against sin, but forgiving of the one that comes to him in humility. There's no sin in him. Many people want to come and try to stick a finger in God's face and say, well, that was wrong. God cannot do wrong. God is. He told Moses in Exodus 3.14, I am who I am. I was here before all this. There was nothing else other than me. So that everything that exists came from me. So anything that is not like me is by definition evil. Well, could God lie? It's a foolish question. God is truth. To lie is to deviate from the character of God. That's who he is. He's omnibenevolent. We also believe, and this is important, something else we've talked about many times, through the fullness of biblical revelation in the Holy Trinity. First, God is one. There is only one being in all of existence who has the substance of God. We talked about this. Substance means the attribute of. You have the attribute of humanness, right? That's a quality you have. If you have a goldfish, it has the quality of fishness, which is something you don't have. Monotheism means there is only one entity or being in all of existence who has the quality godness. Only one. But secondly, we believe that God is three. You read through the scripture, there are three persons who distinctly share that substance. The Father is God, the Son is God, and the Holy Spirit is God. And that is perhaps the greatest mystery of Christian theology, and I never get tired of talking about it. God is one and God is three. God in three persons. Our lives are bound to the worship of this God. We worship him as he has revealed himself. And it just makes me reassured to know that the God I worship is greater than me and is sometimes a little hard to understand. There are even some critters that you can study in a biology class that are hard to understand. And we want to think we can come to God and say, I got him all figured out. The Lord's like, no, you don't. I've told you everything I think you can handle, and it's all true, but there's so much more. And of course, moving on to, to our, our third major point here, the center of all Christian doctrine is the person of Jesus Christ. We believe at Calvary Chapel and across the Christian church that Jesus of Nazareth is the Son of God. He is the promised Messiah of the Old Testament, which is the word Christ who died on the cross for the forgiveness of sins and then rose from the dead. That's really the center of the center, is it not? John 1, verses 1 and then verse 14. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. There's the Trinity. And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen His glory, glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. The story of Jesus which is the continuation and the building to a climax of the story of Israel, is the story that we hold to. Jesus was a person who lived. He's not just an idealized human that we made up. Jesus lived in around 30 AD was his life and ministry and his death. In a place called Judea, Israel, under Roman rule, during the reign of Emperor Tiberius, 
You can take a plane and fly there. It's not made up. The Bible bears witness faithfully to his life. But before that life, he was the second person of that trinity I just discussed. God's son. He existed before creation. There was never a moment when he was not. Church hashed that out a long time ago. There was never a time where there was no son of God. He existed before his own birth. We see him in various ways in the Old Testament, in shadows and in hints, and then he comes fully in the New Testament. We believe then in what's called the incarnation, the infleshment. (laughs) Jesus Christ took on flesh. He became a man and was born to the Virgin Mary. Another one that is alarming how ready people are to dismiss that. Jesus was born of a virgin. His mother... And Father had never come together before he was born sexually. He was conceived by the overshadowing of the Holy Spirit. He took on in the incarnation what we call hypostatic union. Remember we were talking about substance, right? Goldfishness and godness, right? Well, he had the substance of godness. He took on in addition to that, not instead of that, but in addition to that, the substance of man, humanity. So he is deity and humanity. 100% God and 100% man. He's not 50% God and 50% man. And when he's doing miracles, you know, he's like 75% God. No, no, no. Without mixture, without dilution, he has two natures. Which makes him the unique bridge between God and man. As S.M. Lockridge famously said, the only one qualified to be an all-sufficient Savior. He lived a sinless life. And he taught us the truth about God, about Scripture, about life. His word is the final word. We also believe he was crucified historically under Pontius Pilate, historical Roman governor of the time, at the behest of the Jews who were jealous of him. And that he died. He did not just appear to die. He did not swap with Simon of Cyrene, which is what some Muslims believe. He did not only appear to die, but he didn't really have a body so he couldn't die, as some early Christian heretics believed. He died. He gave up the ghost. The whole world convulsed when that happened. But then on the third day, Jesus rose from the dead. The resurrection. You could even say the resurrection is the center of the center of the center of the center of what it means to be a Christian. The apostles' main job was to bear witness to the resurrection. Go out and tell everybody what you've seen. That Jesus died. You watched him bleed out on that cross. And then he came and saw you later on. And you watched him ascend to heaven. Paul says in 1 Corinthians 15, If Jesus Christ has not risen from the dead, what are we doing here? And I would say the same thing about any Christian church today. We are wasting our time if Jesus has not risen from the dead. And people say things like, Well, there's still a lot of moral lessons to be learned. And Christianity can become a, a cultural glue that we need, even if none of it's true. Paul said, if in this life, that's the only time we have hope in Christ, we're pathetic. Said, because we get our heads chopped off. We get thrown to the wild beast. How, how is that a nice way to live? If it's wrong, we're not interested. But it is right, and that's why we're here. He ascended to heaven where right now he sits at the right hand of his father, leading his church, interceding for his church, and someday he will come back to judge the living and the dead. That's Acts 17.30. Paul said, before Christ, God was patient. He was willing to put up with a lot of your nonsense. 
But Jesus Christ has died and risen, and now it's time to get it right because Judgment Day is coming. We believe there will be an actual judgment, and that Jesus Christ will be the judge. He will establish a kingdom on this earth, and we will spend forever and ever with Him in a new heaven and a new earth that He will create. These truths that I just laid out about Jesus, this is the center of our faith. Without this, we have no faith. We just have tradition. And it might be nice, but it's not gospel. This is what it means to be a Christian, to believe that about Jesus. But we don't just have the Bible and God and a great story about a man named Jesus. What did Jesus actually accomplish on that cross? This will be our last major section here, just a few minutes to go through this. What did all that mean? We don't believe, as many do, that you can put whatever meaning you want on it. What was God doing through this story? Well, to do that, we've got to talk a little bit about what we believe about humanity. We believe that every person, man and woman, is made in the image of God. You have an eternal, immortal soul. You are more than your body. But every person is also a sinner. You were born into sin, and you have committed sin. So in that sense, you are a victim of the corruption of the world, but you're also a perpetrator of the corruption of the world. Now, because God, as we said, is omnibenevolent, he is just, he must judge sin with death forever in hell. He warned us from day one, if you sin, you will die. And the prophets repeated that. The New Testament repeats that. That is our destiny. Eternal punishment in hell. But God loved us so much. He sent his son Jesus, as I just said, to die as a sacrifice on the cross. Why do you think God took all this time to set up this giant sacrificial system that would last for hundreds of years because he wanted to drill into his people, I will accept a perfect sacrifice. But what kind of sacrifice could be perfect enough to pay for your sins? How about the God-man, Jesus Christ? He took our penalty upon himself. He didn't deserve it. He never sinned. It was a willing sacrifice. And when he rose again, it signaled to the whole world, it worked. God has accepted that sacrifice. That's the real basic meaning of the resurrection, isn't it? How do we know that any of this meant anything? Well, he came back to life. Jesus has done everything necessary to now offer you forgiveness for your sins if you will receive it. That's called grace. That God has given us salvation when we could not earn it ourselves. We don't have to go climb the mountain. We don't have to say the prayer this many times. It's God that saves us. That's kind of the whole point, right? You couldn't save yourself. And that salvation is received. How do you get in? How do I get there? Tell me what I got to do. Through faith. By believing in Jesus. And not just saying, yeah, that was probably true. No, no, no. Believing it with all your heart. Believing it so much that it causes you to completely turn your life around. The Bible calls it repentance. Changing the way you think. Changing directions in the way you walk. All those words that mean repentance in the Bible. Say, I'm not going to live this way anymore. I'm going to follow Jesus. I'm going to let his sacrifice count for me. When I stand before God, I'm not going to have anything to show him except Jesus Christ is my sacrifice. Ephesians 2, verses 8 and 9 says, For by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. 
When you believe on Jesus Christ, you are saved. You are being saved day by day as the Lord's Holy Spirit slowly, slowly conforms you to the image of Christ. And that someday you will be finally saved when after death you're not going to face hell. You're going to face eternal heaven with Christ Jesus. The Bible says to be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. That's glorious. That's the gospel, which means good news. Salvation which is forgiveness of sins offered by grace and accepted through faith. That's the gospel. That's what we believe. We believe the Bible. It's God's word. We believe the God of the Bible and all his holiness and in all his trinity. We believe in his son, Jesus Christ, incarnate, made flesh and died on the cross and risen from the dead, coming back to judge. And we believe that salvation is by grace through faith. Those are the essentials. Apart from these, you cannot really call yourself a Christian. Now, there are those that inexplicably, to my mind, believe in God, believe that Jesus is who he said he is, and believe in the gospel, but have a lot of problems with the Bible. I don't quite know how you get there, but I think that you need to include that in the essentials, because if you don't have that, if you don't have that that record of faith, how can you know for sure? But, I mean, even still... All that, those four things, that's pretty lean, isn't it? There's not a lot of fat on that steak. We say, this is what it means to be a Christian. And you're, you're probably thinking, what about this? What about that? What about this doctrine? What about that thing? Well, the Lord is, has given us a pretty narrow list of what it takes to be saved. Anything beyond that, really, is a matter of disagreement, not heresy. To not believe that Jesus Christ is the only Son of God, that's heresy, right? To believe there's more than one God is heresy. That is not to say that other things do not matter. We're going to talk about some of them next time, and some of them are very important. I, like I said, I think the doctrine of Scripture is so important as to be pushing right up against the edge of essential. And there are other things that we have respectful disagreements over coffee as Christians, as brothers in the Christ. But with all these things that I just laid out, Calvary Chapel stands with the rest of the historic church on these things, which is an exciting prospect to me. That you stand in the long line of men and women who have carried the torch of salvation for 2,000 years. I love reading the writings of the church fathers and the theologians, and as they're called, the doctors of the church from hundreds, thousands of years ago. And you're like, this could have been said today. This guy knows Christ. You know, you can just tell. Like, this guy knew Jesus. This woman knew Christ. And all throughout history, there's been that faithful witness. And so we have committed ourselves to the mission of spreading that good news because, as I said, we actually believe this stuff. It's not just a good story to inspire you to do better. It's real. The Bible calls this our deposit that we must keep. We sing that song, the Son of God goes forth to war, and it's got that refrain, who follows in their train? We sing about Jesus, we sing about the martyrs, we sing about the apostles. Who's coming next? Well, it's us. This is our time to guard the deposit, to carry the torch that we keep either until the Lord comes or until we pass it on to our children, our grandchildren. And by the grace of God, we here will do exactly that. However long it takes, and whatever the cost may be, Because if it was worth Jesus dying for, then it's worth you and me living for.